Hi everyone, welcome to the latest episode of The Force for Good, a Global Britain podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Baldry, Communications Manager at the Coalition for Global Prosperity. This week, I'll be speaking to Canadian Member of Parliament, Mike Lake. Mike has been a serving MP since 2006 and also served in the Conservative government under the previous Prime Minister, Stephen Harper. We'll be speaking about the importance of international development, the impacts of COVID and why we have to move on past empty slogans. So, without further delay, let's get going. So, I'm now joined by Mike Lake, Member of Parliament. Mike, it's great to have you on the podcast today. It's great to be here. Um, So, just to get us going, tell us about yourself and your journey into politics. Give us the the rundown. (laughs) Sure, yeah. Um, I, uh, I worked back before I got involved in politics from the mid 90s till the the mid 2000s worked for the Edmonton Oilers hockey club so a national hockey league team here in Canada uh you know a, a team that had a as a uh, a pretty cool history Wayne Gretzky played here uh greatest player ever to play the game uh and uh and uh you know we that was a great career for someone that grew up wanting to play hockey but in uh sort of around 2004 2005 uh we uh I started to get a little bit more interested in politics I'd never really been involved in politics but uh um after a 2004 election where we lost in my constituency by just over a hundred votes, uh, you know, we were lamenting the loss, and we were in a minority parliament situation uh, uh, where another party was in power, and and uh, uh, the Conservatives had lost. I think the fourth election we lost in a row, and we were sitting, just my friends and I, sitting around a fire in the backyard one night, and sort of lamenting this loss and wondering how someone gets involved in politics, how someone runs, uh, um, even you know, gets their name on a sign for a party. Um, and so we started to explore it a little bit. And at the time, you know, working with the Oilers, I had, uh, uh, some good experience on the sales side of things and, uh, and some name recognition. So, um, decided to throw my hat in the ring and, and ran in a nomination and, and won that there were five contestants here in, uh, at what was Edmonton Millwoods Beaumont at the time, um, issues that just drove me. It was really fiscal responsibility more than anything else. So just, uh, um, you know, we, uh, we, we were in an okay budgetary situation. There was some, uh, scandals around the time and around the government and a government that had been in power in 13 years and, and, uh, thought the best way to make a difference was to get involved. Mm. Oh, that's really cool. Um, so a large part of your career has been, uh, you've looked at sort of international development, but you've also done a lot of work around side of disabilities and things like that. And I know that's something that's very personal to you. Um, would you want to talk us through a bit of your work in that field? For sure, for sure. So I was elected in 2006. And at the time, um, uh, I had two kids, I still have two kids. Uh, but at the time, they were uh, nine and six years old. And uh, my nine-year-old uh, boy, his name's Jaden, and he has autism. And so when I got elected, I didn't decide to run for politics because of that issue. It wasn't the main thing that sort of drove me to run. Uh, he had a pretty good program here in Alberta, the province that I live in. But as time went on, and it wasn't very long, within the first couple of years that I was a member of parliament, to uh, realize that there was a platform, not everybody, uh, even in Canada, had access to the same services that Jaden had access to uh, when he was younger, and uh, and certainly around the world, it was really different. And so 
did some interviews and, you know, got involved in World Autism Awareness Day and those kind of things right off the start of things and just realized that the, you know, the story we were telling was resonating with people and there was a real opportunity to um, help people to understand a little bit more about autism and and uh, developmental disability more broadly. And, and uh, um, it's really become a big part of the work that I do ever since. No, that's really interesting. Thank you. And I guess, so, as I mentioned, you know, international development has kind of been a big part of your career and a big interest, I guess I should say, sorry. And over here in the UK, the role of international development is, is currently part of a big debate and the Conservative government is, has reduced the aid budget. And, and I just kind of wonder how, you know, as a Conservative, how do you reconcile that kind of support for UK develop or for international development with you know being a conservative member of parliament so yeah the the uh you know the interest in international development sort of followed the interest in helping people who are vulnerable here uh with with disability so um in in 2010 when we hosted the g8 uh with uh prime minister harper here in in canada we hosted it in an area north of toronto uh the muskokas and the signature initiative that came out of that G8 meeting was the Muskoka Initiative. Um, there was a recognition and international development stakeholders had worked with our government at the time and, and worked directly with the Prime Minister, um, highlighting an area that was behind in the Millennium, Millennium Development Goals from 2000 to 2015. So we were two, th two thirds of the way through that, that uh, time frame, and they highlighted two areas. Uh, um, mortality of kids uh, eight, under five, so uh, and then mortality of mothers in and around childbirth, and we had targets to reduce the mortality levels at a global level that the world had agreed to, and just we're making no progress on that, and so we rallied the world around that and raised billions of dollars. And there's a few things that kind of come out on that, uh, you know, for us um, hardwired into that, and I think this has got to be a core conservative principle uh, for conservatives approaching international development. Hardwired in where accountability and transparency measures. So the, the idea that uh, countries on a regular basis go to these big, you know, events uh, where big announcements are made at festivals or whatever the case is. And oftentimes gover governments don't actually deliver what they promise. And, and so we hardwired an accountability into it that uh, was going to hold governments accountable for the promises they made. And then on the transparency side, uh, our prime minister co-chaired a, a, a believe it was a working group of some sort with uh, um, with uh, the president, I believe, of Tanzania, Kikwete, who I think now is the, the, the incoming chair of the Global Partnership for Education. But, um, you know, it was a, a, a an important initiative to ensure transparency for the dollar spent because our constituents, of course, uh, not everybody is in favor of increasing amounts of international development. The international development spending that we do, we need to maximize the benefit for. It needs to be uh, in areas where uh, we can get broad public support. In the case of uh, uh, the Muskoka Initiative, um, you know, uh, resulting in saving saving kids' lives and, and and the lives of mothers was something that was easy for Canadians to support and rally around and feel proud of, and uh, and we had real results because of it. And I think that's critical. Uh, you know, if if uh, you know if if voters are going to be supportive of international development, if governments are going to move forward with strong programs for international development, they have to have that broad support of uh, voters and they have to be on, you know, we have to be focused on things that people are going to rally around. Mm. And I guess kind of on that, it's, 
how do you sort of sell the success of international development? Because government spending on it isn't as visible as, say, you know, if you build a new hospital, you can see it, school places, you can see those. And a lot of other government spending is very visible. How do you kind of persuade people that it is in their interest that their tax money goes to these projects overseas? Because it's quite a it's a very different argument that you have to make, isn't it? Well, it, it is. And, and of course, for different people, the argument, different arguments are going to make sense to them. So for some, it's going to be, uh, you know, focus on on the benefit to trade relationships as countries um, get stronger and become closer to to ours uh, through through some form of partnership that might have started with international development. Um, you know, we might be establishing stronger trade ties and that might have benefit for some. The security argument is going to make sense. And of course, there's a lot of turmoil around the world right now, a lot of conflict around the world, a lot of fragile states. And and uh, the more that we can do to help to create some stability and some hope for the future for, for people working with people on the ground with their elected leaders, uh, if possible, with NGOs on the ground, but with the, you know, the people who, who need the help, the, you know, the, the more stable these, these areas become and, and the stronger the world is off uh, for it. And then there's, of course, just a compassionate side. Uh, and, and when people understand what it is that we're spending the money on, by and large, people are more supportive. And I found that here in Canada, we've had uh, had a very memorable meeting uh, a, a couple of years ago in opposition with uh, an NGO that brought a, um, a pollster in and we had a conversation about some polls that they'd done and showed that Canadians were in favor of, uh, of international development. But as we walked through the polling that they'd done, um, you know, I, I was able to point out that in the questions that were being asked, there was a, a story being told. And so by the end, having been told even a short story in say a 10 minute survey, um, people were expressing their support for international development. But I don't think that the broad population has take, had that 10 minute conversation. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes their preconceptions get in the way. And if they're just asked straight out, do you support international development? Um, they, they might not support whatever their view is of international development, but when they understand what it is that we're doing, um, it tends, they tend to be much more supportive. And I mean, to that end, let me, I'll, I'll tell a story. I mean, the fact that is that uh, uh, on those two millennium development goals that we focused on uh, with the Muskoka initiative, um, in 2000, we were losing 9 million kids, I believe, around the world, uh, you know, to, to things, kids under five, to things that we would never accept kids dying from in, in North America, for example. Um, by the end, by 2015, the end of the 15 years, and, and largely because of uh, the efforts that our government led, that number went from 9 million kids a year to, to under 6 million kids a year. So 3 million kids every single year that were living um, because of efforts that the global community was uh, rallying around led by, led by Canada. And, uh, and the same could be said for mothers. It, the number was 500,000 mothers dying every year in and around childbirth, again, largely preventable. And we've seen that number, we saw that number come down from 500,000 to 300,000. So that's 200,000, you know, families that have a mother every single year that wouldn't have uh, because of efforts that uh, uh, the world was contributing to. And when you talk about some of the things, the, the innovations, um, you know, that we're talking about, uh, some of the, some of the interventions were, you know, 10 cents, you know, uh, 
Um, you, you, you could be talking about a, a little razor blade, like an exacto knife type razor blade that costs pennies to cut the umbilical cord instead of, you know, instead of someone chewing the umbilical cord cut and then a, a, a little bottle of drops to put on the end of it, uh, end of the umbilical cord instead of rubbing mud on the end of the umbilical cord. And, you know, those types of things, a plastic sheet that you lay on the, on a dirt floor for giving birth rather than giving birth on a dirt floor, right? So such simple innovations and uh, um, just, you know, had a massive impact on saving lives. But, but again, people need to know about those things. Mm. And that kind of sort of leads in to my next question was that after COVID, I think you may disagree, but I think we're kind of seeing a bit where countries are naturally tending to look inwards at the moment. And I think there's been, there could be a bit of a steer away from kind of looking at the wider global community. And I was just sort of wanting to pick your brain on how you think we can make sure that nations such as Canada and the UK do continue to, you know, obviously make sure that all their societies can build back after COVID and things like that. I hate to use that very that phrase, build back better, but to build back from COVID. But how do you think that we can make sure that we don't lose sight of those bigger international challenges as well? I think your your question brings forward a, a ton of great points, um, just in the way that you phrased your question. We, we can't get lost in nice sounding taglines, first of all. And uh, we've got no shortage of that. Um, we've seen it here in Canada, but around the world, build, build Back Better is one of them. But there are, you know, talking about people having each other's backs and all of it. You know what? We, we actually have to act. It's not enough to just throw out fancy sounding taglines. We've got to act. We've got to show leadership. It stands to reason that our populations uh, are, you know, when it comes to vaccinations, for example, that our populations are, are going to want to get vaccinated as quickly as we can. I think that, uh, you know, what we probably could have done maybe differently is uh, rally immediately around, uh, you know, identifying the need for however many vaccinations we were going to need worldwide. So let's say, 15 or 16 billion doses of vaccine uh, with boosters that'll go higher. But, uh, you know, right from the outset, that should have been our mission is uh, target. How can we um, harnessing the ingenuity, the innovation, the capacity of uh, billions of people around the world? How can we create the vaccines that we're going to need ultimately? How can we, you know, how can we, uh, um, it, it, the other things that we were going to need as well in terms of testing capability and PPE and all of those other things we need. Um, and I do think that we, um, we got, we, I think it's human nature that we're, we're somewhat insular. I don't think that it's wrong to make sure that we take care of the, you know, our, our, our local populations. I mean, our, our families first and then our communities and our, our local populations. Mm. But that conversation should include an extension to a, a global approach that uh, that we need to take ultimately to have the impact that we want to have and move on with our lives. In, in development, uh, a lot of discussion often centers around sort of other nations like China and Russia being the kind of bogeyman, if you want, of development of, if we don't do it, they will, um, but their development comes with more strings attached. And, you know, there's a very big debate around, you know, if democratic nations step away, that leaves a void for others to step in and give development with maybe less stringent conditions or something. You know, how, how, how do you see that argument? Because, uh, you know, at the same if you're that receiving, if you're the state receiving the aid, you're going to be grateful that you're being that it's received 
regardless of who it's from. So sort of how do you think we confront that next big debate that's coming or already here? First of all, I mean, I, I don't I don't even think that there's really a debate if we if we do step away other countries are going to step in. There's no question. I've seen it on the ground when I visited uh, in Malawi, for example, um, you know, seen infrastructure projects that were being undertaken by, by China um, there. And, and um, it's very clear that there's, you know, going to be some, something expected in return. I don't think it's clear what that thing is sometimes. So uh, I don't think you have the same transparency um and i think that we live in a globally connected world you know i know that there's there's some for whom the world is too globally connected and uh you know uh um we we all hear from them uh on a regular basis on social media and whatever the case but but it's a fact i mean uh technology has made us more connected than we've ever been connected and uh and relationships matter and uh um you know, the, 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 if we do international development properly, we are doing it on the basis of relationship. We're building relationships that we will have for, uh, you know, for the long term if we do it properly. And, uh, and, and, and if we're absent in those situations, other people will build, other countries will build those relationships. No, thank you. I guess, sort of, as we are coming towards the end of the, interview at the moment i wonder throughout your career and your elections and the kind of things you've seen what are kind of some of the main lessons or insights you've picked up from your time in politics that's really stuck with you like what have been the biggest things that you've have they've sort of shaped your view of them yeah really that's poorly worded but <laughs> no yeah i i would say um the platform that we have as uh, as elected people, so as parliamentarians around the world, um, being elected um, anywhere, but being elected in a you know in a, a a country like Canada, gives you the opportunity to reach out to just about anybody you want, um, and you might not get a meeting with everybody you want, but uh, but you're not out of place asking for one. And so, you know, that, that, that opportunity to really seize the initiative and, and tackle big things, um, you know, things that, are, that, that you have personal experience in or things that you just identify, um, you know, need some attention is, is something that I think too many parliamentarians don't understand or don't realize the potential of. Um, you know, I, I've been a member of parliament here for 16 years. That's a long time. And so I have that benefit of, uh, of, of that experience, but I'm still learning uh, even after 16 years. Um, I also think that I, I really give a lot of thought to the way that we communicate. Um, we've really been become concerned, we meaning myself and my team and people I'm close to, uh, about the way that people are talking to each other, uh, you know, across the floor, from other parties, from other political, um, you know, uh, persuasions, uh, even even across borders, and um, in in social media is making that problem is amplifying that problem. And these conversations now, it's not just politicians bombing each other with talking points. The you know many many people, just regular voters, are bombing each other with talking points on social media. Some of them are completely anonymous. You have no idea where they're coming from. And some of them are brutal. They're not so much talking points as just direct, you know, directly spewed hatred. And this is this is a unique problem to our era. 
And it's something that we have to take seriously. And as politicians, I think that we, we have to find a way to communicate our messages um, as passionately as we would, uh, you know, otherwise we want to have the same intensity of debate that we've always had, but, but there has to be a respect, um, you know, in there as well, recognizing that there are a lot of people out there having parallel debates that uh, are following every, everything we say. And, uh, um, you know, it's, it is, as I say, this sort of um, uh, deterioration in the, the tenor of debate is concerning. Mm. And you're just about to kick off a brand new parliament. What's kind of your main one or two goals that you're looking to kind of achieve in, in this session? Well, we're in uh, a second minority parliament in a row with almost identical numbers to what we had uh, in the last parliament. And it is, uh, it is a unique situation because for the second time in a row, our Conservative Party is in opposition, um, the Liberal Party is in government, but the Conservative Party got more votes across the country than the Liberal Party got. And that's creating a, a real tension, um, just the um, the uh, it, it's, it's sort of seeming uh, inequality of votes, I guess, in a sense. In my area, it's really profound. So it's something that for me, others might not feel it the same way we do here in Alberta, but uh, um, you know, in, in my constituency, we get as many votes as say uh, five liberal elected members of parliament get uh, in five different ridings. And, uh, and so that's a real challenge because um, there, is a, there is a divide like we haven't seen in, in a few decades here in Canada right now. And it's gonna take, it's gonna take the attention of, of the government certainly um, to, uh, to address that. And I think um, you know, that's gonna be a big issue in this parliament moving forward. And then you, of course, having those conversations in the context of a global pandemic. So mm-hmm. um, we've, uh, I, I expect that as we come back, probably in mid-November, will have lost two months of sitting time um, because of an election that uh, most Canadians don't believe needed to happen at this point in time. And so I think there will be some attention paid to uh, sort of catching up in that regard as we've uh, we've been challenged with a fourth wave here in, in Canada. But, uh, but moving beyond that, I think this parliament will be different than the last one. The last one started just before COVID. So we didn't expect to, the, the dominating issue to be COVID in the last parliament. This parliament, it comes after we've been dealing with it for a year and a half. Uh, I think that uh, we're going to see a transition to talking about the economic impacts. Um, you know, the fact that uh, our, our kids and grandkids are going to be paying for, um, you know, the, the $400 billion that's been uh, borrowed over the course of time here. And I think there's going to be real conversation about sort of how we move forward to get some fiscal stability in this country and ensure that uh, that our our, our, our future generations of Canadians have the same opportunities that we had. Nice small issues to grapple with then. <laughs> ah, just um, a few, just a few yeah. little things we'll be dealing with, right? <laughs> and so finally, a nice lighthearted question that I ask all, uh, most of my podcast guests. If you could invite two people to dinner from history, past or present, who would they be? And I didn't give you advance notice of this one on purpose. So no, sorry. you, 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 you didn't. You didn't. Um, who would they be? Uh, two people from history. I will say Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill. That's what I'd say. Uh, you know, 
fascinated fascinated by uh the the histories of both um of course they uh were elected leaders in uh in incredibly challenging times and i think that uh while we can learn a lot from reading history books, uh, we could learn a lot more if we had the chance to talk to them and ask them questions about how they made decisions uh, in those difficult times. Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you so much for your time and the best of luck for the upcoming Parliament and uh, all your work. Thanks, Ryan. Really enjoyed this. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for joining us and a huge thank you goes out to Mike Lake for his time and an excellent insight into the world of international development. I look forward to speaking with you all next time and don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes and also have a listen to some of our past interviews with some great people. Thank you again for tuning in and have a great day.